eBay Motors is here for the ride. Elbow grease and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. So have you ever thought your life was too routine and safe? Maybe you've felt like you've never had the chance to test your mettle and see how you'd respond in a chaotic situation. I mean, would you break or would you rise to the challenge? And I think it's a common experience for many men. Well, my guest today on the podcast had those same feelings and decided to do something about it by becoming a paramedic in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, instantly, he was thrown into a world that often goes unseen. Violence, addiction, and mangled bodies became a regular part of his existence. His name is Kevin Hazard, and he's the author of the book, A Thousand Naked Strangers, A Paramedic's Wild Ride to the Edge and Back. And today on the podcast, Kevin gives us an inside look into the hidden world of paramedics and shares what he's learned during his 10 years of service as a paramedic about himself self as well as the human condition uh, a great show fascinating uh, when you're done make sure to check out the show notes at aom.is slash hazard and that's spelled h-a-z-z-a-r-d kevin hazard welcome to the show thanks uh, thank you for having me on it's great to be here so your book is called A Thousand Naked Strangers, A Paramedic's Wild Ride to the Edge and Back. It's a memoir of your time as a paramedic in Atlanta. And the backstory of how you became a paramedic is fascinating because before that, you uh, were a novelist. You had written a fiction book. You were a newspaper reporter. And then out of the blue, you decide to become an EMT. And that's a huge career change. And I figure, you know, someone with your background, they'd probably become like a high school English teacher or something. So what drew you to become a paramedic? Yeah, that is a huge change. Um, and, you know, it, uh, there are a few different factors that were involved in that. And the first was, you know, and they're not in, in any way necessarily even related. Um, the first was that while I was in college, I went to school in, in South Carolina and lived in Charleston. And, um, well, I was in college, I, I had the summer job where I led jet ski tours. And one afternoon, I had these two guys in one of the tours I was leading that were kind of spraying each other with the jet skis, and um, they wound up crashing into one another. And the one ski kind of jumped up in the air, the one guy was knocked into the water, and the jet ski came down and hit the one guy in the face. And, I mean, pretty much everything below the nose was gone. And so here he is, he's floating in 75 feet of water, he's missing half of a face. I mean, this is a horrible, you know, this terrifying, life-threatening moment. I am 19 years old, I'm hopeful, hopelessly outgunned by the situation. And 
I did the only thing that bystanders are asked not to do in the event of emergency. I totally panicked. And so that was my sort of one experience with an emergency, was just not handling it well and just having this horrible feeling of, you know, oh, God, this is, this is what it's like when things go wrong. And then so I graduate. I'm, I was supposed to have gone to the Peace Corps, but I met this girl who, you know, essentially changed my whole world. And I was like, all right, I guess I'm not going on. I'm going to stay home to be with her. So I had to figure out what I was going to do from there, and I wound up being a reporter, which was great because in so many ways it fit exactly what I wanted to do. The problem was I had this intention all along of going off to to live this adventure and to do something that was much larger than myself and, and, you know, be part of of something, you know, at least in my mind that, that would have mattered. And now I found myself covering, you know, city council meetings and highway budget meetings and it just felt the opposite of everything that I thought I was going to do. And then 9-11 happens, and because I had gone to the Citadel, which is a military college in, in Charleston, a lot of my friends were in the military, and they are marching off to Iraq and Afghanistan. One of them was one of the first Marines to go into Iraq during that invasion. And they, you know, I'm hearing from them, and they're telling these unbelievable stories, and I just know without even having to speak to them that, you know, they are involved in this huge thing, this massive moment, that's going to define our generation. And I am at home covering a city council meeting and it just, all the, all those things kind of came together at the exact same moment. The, the the constant wondering if I am no more than someone who panics at a time of, of emergency, the feeling that, you know, I thought I was going to do something larger than myself and now I'm not. And then just the general, I guess, malaise of, of being a 22-year-old kid who suddenly finds himself really bored with where he is. And all those things happening, and I just realized there's got to be something more than what I'm doing. This isn't, this isn't what I want to be. And around that time, I covered a tunnel collapse. And in the subsequent articles, both from witnessing these guys the night of that disaster and then talking to them afterward, I saw something in them that I realized could address all these things that, that I had been, you know, these, these voids, I guess, that, that, I, that I'd had. And it was just this epiphany moment of, oh, wow, like right here under my nose at home is something that I can do that, that satisfies all these needs. And um, I, I couldn't shake the thought. And so my wife, who is, you know, very typical type A personality, you know, and it's just like, <laughs> don't talk about it. If you want to do it, just do it. You know, shut up and do it. Uh, and that's what she said one morning when I was talking about it. She said, if you want to do it, just quit your job and go to school. Just just do it. And so I did. That's really interesting. So this is the Art of Manliness podcast, and I hate playing armchair psychologist, but I think what you experienced, I think a lot of men have gone through that sort of thing where they, they feel like they're missing something. And they want to know if they're competent in times of emergency, that they, that they have this idea to be a man, they have to know what to do when things go wrong. You, do you think a little bit of that was going on in you as well, or do you just... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a, a huge a huge part of it that, you know, and I think that's the word, competent. Um, I, I remember way back when I read uh, Black Hawk Down, and the description that one of the, the widows gives of her husband, who had been one of the, the Delta snipers, and that, you know, she was concerned that she was never going to be able to, you know, how can you ever replace a guy who has that level of competency? And that, that no matter what he entered into, 
she felt confident that, that he could do it, you know, whether it was fixing the refrigerator or sewing a Halloween costume or heading off to Mogadishu to be a Delta sniper. Like he was that guy who could just handle any situation. And when you haven't been put in that situation, when you haven't forced yourself into that situation, when you haven't, you know, done anything to say, you know, I want to test myself under extreme conditions, you know, you, 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 you don't know. And you, you do have no way of even gauging where you would fall um, in that line. So that was a huge part of it. And, and that was a big part of what I noticed in these guys. You know, the, they were this sort of special rescue tactical team that, you know, go out for various types of, of incidents, including, you know, the tunnel collapse. Um, and there was, there was a, there was the way in which they carried themselves suggested that, that they were supremely confident in their abilities and that they had been there before would have to go again and knew that they could handle it. And that was something I envied and certainly wanted to have in my own life. So your wife was really supportive in all this and said, you know, just do it, quit talking about becoming a paramedic and just go do it. So you did it. Can you walk us through the job of a paramedic? Because I think it's a it's a big mystery for a lot of civilians. They just don't know what's involved in becoming a paramedic or what the job is really like. You know, so for example, I always imagine that a paramedic's training would be really, really intense. You know, EMTs, paramedics, these are the people who are the first responders on call when people are dying or there's big trauma. So you're going to expect that these are highly and rigorously trained medical specialists. So is the training very rigorous to become an EMT? Yeah, you know, the the training is, is, is a funny thing. Um, EMT, you know, and it's different for a paramedic. Uh, you know, the difference between EMT and paramedic, the easiest way to say it is imagine the EMT is the nurse and the paramedic is the doctor. It's that sort of hierarchy and difference in training. Um, but the EMT training is really kind of a funny thing. Uh, unlike other branches of public safety, it isn't something that you have to be first hired by the city and go through the city's hiring practices. You know, if you want to be a cop, that's what you have to do. You have to apply with the city, and it's this long Byzantine process. And then you go to the city's academy. Same thing if you want to be a firefighter. Well, EMS in most places, although it's, it's starting to change, a lot more and more municipalities are, are pairing fire and EMS into one service. But uh, it, it essentially, you know, anyone who wants to sign up for night school can come out registered as an EMT. And you don't have a job. You just simply have a certificate that says, you know, I went to six months of school. Now I am an EMT. I passed this nationally administered exam. And, you know, and I, I, <laughs> I have the requirements to be an EMT should somebody want to hire me. So in that regard, it's kind of different that you can just go to the school and, and, and be it. And so, you know, there's not a ton of standardized training. You know, the test is standardized, but how people are trained, how regular, rigorously they're trained, is kind of all over the board. And, you know, when I got there, my class, my teacher was very good. Um, and he'd been in EMS for a long time. And, uh, you know, he had a huge class. I mean, I think there were 60-some-odd of us in there. And so he, he had a hard time, um, you know, I think, keeping us in line because you know, he had a bunch of, like, a lot of 22-year-old kids who were just goofing off. Um, so some of it was just trying to herd cats and keep us moving. But, he was very good, and, and you know, I, when I walked out of that, I felt as prepared as somebody could be. But the training essentially is, you know, you're taking people with zero experience, and you're trying to teach them to, to handle every single emergency that could possibly happen. So, you know, it's almost like Western Civ, you know, that you, which you take in college. It's like there's no way you're really going to be able to learn a 1,000 years of Western history. 
so they just touch on really the big points um and it's it's a lot like that you know we did uh you know there's the cpr heimlich section um there's some stuff on uh you know bleeding control you get an overview on stuff like seizures and diabetic emergencies and strokes and heart attacks just enough so you have some clue of what's happening around you um and you you know we uh uh did some work on you know how to read the signs on the side of tractor trailers so, so if you know you know if a tractor trailer has tipped over and you've been called out to it you should at least go to look at it and say hey the stuff in there is really flammable and we should be careful so that's kind of what it is it's just massive overview of everything that could possibly happen you know as, as well as a couple of weeks of anatomy and physiology crammed in there and you know there's some practical skills that you have to learn like you know ivs and um you know, using airways and using various types of splints and stuff. But, I mean, it's essentially a sprint through, you know, emergency medicine. And then you come out after six to eight months, and and then you're luckily, in most cases, you know, you're the junior member. So ideally you are working with someone with some experience who can say, okay, remember that stuff you learned? Well, here's here's how you put it into practice. Can you tell us about your classmates? I mean, what walks of life do they come from? Do they cover a spectrum of socioeconomic classes? Uh, do you have doctor who are students going through the paramedic training? Uh, you said uh, 22-year-old kids who just didn't really know what to do in their lives uh, were there as well. Is that the type of people who went to school? Yeah, we had all sorts of people. In my class, um, you know, I noticed in general in EMS you have sort of a wide swath of, of the American public um, from, you know, whether it's uh, like a someone who went to Duke and is trying to get into med school but screwed around too much in school and so now has to try to bolster their their application. There are people like that. But my class in particular is, a, you know, very much a blue-collar group. The oldest guy, I think, was 65. Wow. Uh, yeah, he'd been a truck driver um, and one day a car full of nuns. I mean, you can't pick – it would be hard to pick a worse scenario than this. A car full of nuns runs a stop sign and he T-bones them and kills them all. I mean, like of all the things you can do to g- kill a car full of nuns, and even though it wasn't his fault, he just couldn't drive a truck anymore. That was it. Like that, that was his moment. He said, I was done. But he was sufficiently impressed with the guys who showed up on the scene to say, well, maybe this is something I could do. Now, he was in his mid-60s, heavy smoker, in horrible shape. None of us had any illusion that this guy was actually going to be able to do this. But I think it was just some sort of therapeutic step he was trying to take after having just killed a carload of nuns. So he, he was the oldest. Um, and the youngest was probably about 21. He was this part-time mailman. He looked like he was 13. And everywhere in between, or everyone else seemed to fall somewhere in between, you know. A lot of it was people who just graduated from high school a few years ago had been kind of bumping around from one odd job to another and somehow or another had had heard about this and thought, well, you know, I can do three nights a week for six months, and, and you know, maybe that would be a good career field for me. And so they kind of entered into it, you know, a little bit capriciously, thinking, hey, you know, maybe this would be maybe this would be kind of cool. And, and there's a handful of people who, you know, they are fanatical. Like they have wanted to be an EMT since they were a kid, and here's their moment, and they're ready to rush off and do it. But it's, it's people from all walks of life um, that get into it. Right. I guess so. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, so it's interesting that everyone had their different reasons for doing it. Like they had existential reasons and reasons they didn't really have reasons. They just decided to do it. Yeah, it, I was I was surprised. You know, I kind of I expected to, to be something of an outcast coming in because I had no clue really what it was. I, 
you know, I had some understanding that, that ambulances existed, but I didn't really know what they did. And, um, you know, I, I didn't really know what the job was. The first night that I walked into class, I remember distinctly saying to myself, am I going to do this? Like, is this, is this some weird thing that I'm just going to try for a week? And just, you know, I had entered into it so almost accidentally that there was, it was hard for me to even imagine that I was going to make it all the way through. And then of course there was a specter of, of me panicking back in 97 and then I'm flipping through the textbook and I'm looking at these horribly mangled bodies and getting lightheaded and thinking, man, <laughs> this might not be for me. What I thought was surprising in the book was when you talk about getting your first job, you went through the classes, you got certified, and then you go out there to look for a job. And I, I knew that you know EMS had a high turnover rate because it's a tough job, but you had a hard time finding a job at first. Why was that? What's going on there? And also, can you talk a little bit about, I don't know, about the, the different levels of EMS jobs that exist out there? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, as I said before, some in some cities, the EMS department has been uh, enveloped by the fire department and they kind of exist. And, and as I said, those are, those are tough jobs to get, to get in with a fire department. Not that, you know, necessarily that the standards for hiring are, are any different necessarily. It's just that cities tend to hire those kind of jobs once or twice a year. So you have to really be patient, you know, and you have to understand that, Hey, they might not be hiring for another six months. Um, and then when they do, there might be 750 applicants for four jobs. You know, that's kind of, that's kind of how it, how it goes with these, with these, you know, people who get into that job tend to, you know, they tend to retire in it. So there's not a ton of openings. So that was one area that was a, pretty much immediately I realized, okay, I'm not going to get into the fire department. I mean, there's no, you know, it's so difficult to do that. Nor did I really have any interest in fighting fire. You know, it just wasn't what I was there to do. So then you look at, all right, who provides 911 EMS in Atlanta? And if you're in Atlanta, frankly, if you're in Georgia, the place you want to be is Grady. It's this massive public hospital. It's one of the largest trauma centers in the U.S. It's very well known. And they run the EMS department for the city of Atlanta. And so if you want to work in Atlanta, that's where you want to be. There's no doubt. And, of course, that's what I wanted to do. But I went and applied to them, and they said, yeah, no, you need experience. We're not going to hire anyone without experience. So, all right, well, <laughs> how do I get experience? And I... I started looking around at some of the other um, EMS providers, you know, and whether it's Fulton County or different counties, different cities. And I did find one who said, oh, man, I wish you had, you know, called me two days ago. We just got done hiring, which was, you know, one of those gut-wrenching moments. And then I got to the private ambulance services, which I didn't even know existed until this moment. And essentially, you have two types of EMS services. You have 911, which obviously you dial 911 and on the other end of that call, ultimately, is an ambulance with an EMT and a paramedic in it. And the other one are the private services. And their main role is to uh, take people to and from appointments. So they will, if you live in a nursing home, they'll pick you up and take you to a doctor's appointment. Or there are people who live at home that, um, you know, they can't sit up in a car or whatever. And so they need, um, they need an ambulance to take them there. Obviously, without even having to be told, you know that that is not going to attract the prime talent, right? It's either going to be people who are looking for the easiest possible job or people who wanted to be in 911 and either can't because they don't yet have the experience or got there, did not do a good job, and had to leave. And so you, it's a very weird mix of people, a very strange crew, and 
the thing that happens is nursing homes oftentimes will sort of use a non-emergency service, these private ambulance companies, to fudge their math. And so let's just say your grandmother is living in a nursing home and she falls one night or she has a stroke or she chokes on a piece of chicken or she has a super high fever because she has a urinary tract infection that they didn't catch. If they dial 911 and her paperwork is going to say, we had to call 911, which immediately suggests to anyone reading it, hey, there was an emergency. But if they call this non-emergency service, they can say, oh, you know, it wasn't a big deal. It was something minor. We caught it early. You know, and we just called. It was so minor a fact that we didn't even have to call 911. We called a non-emergency service. Even though this woman may have may be having a stroke, and this could be a life-threatening situation, they often do that. And so now, to this emergency, arrive someone who never wanted to be a 911, and his partner, who was someone who tried to be a 911 but couldn't handle it and got washed out. And now they're arriving in this poorly equipped ambulance and doing a really terrible job. And that happens quite often. And, and I worked for one of those places. It was a, it was kind of a shady place, to be perfectly frank. And in my job interview, they never bothered to verify that I actually was an EMT. They took my word for it. Um, they, uh, you know, and in the interview, they, I was assured that, look, I know you've heard the rumors about possible Medicare fraud. We've been investigated, and the government so far can't find any evidence. So for your potential employer to say, you know, we aren't doing anything illegal as far as the government can prove in a job interview is kind of, it's not, <laughs> it's not the sort of thing that immediately bestows a lot of confidence. But that was the only thing I could get, so I took it. And, yeah. uh, you know, I had some weird partners. I mean, I had one who used to, every night she'd bring her girlfriend in, and two of them would, would play cards and drink beer. Um, I had another who used to disappear at night in the ambulance to go pick up prostitutes. Uh, you had another who used to get homeless men to, you know, and pay him a few bucks to clean out the ambulance. I mean, it was a, it was a strange crew of people that worked there. And I, I was always looking around going, I cannot believe that <laughs> this is where I am right now. What weird world have I stumbled into? Yeah. After I read about the private emergency service, I started seeing them uh, when I was driving around because it was on my radar. So uh, there's one, there's this ambulance that I saw that looked like the Ghostbusters car. It was like a hearse, but, but it was a uh, private EMS. And uh, that's not 911. Uh, so thanks to your book, I'm aware of this thing. Did you gain any experience there that would help you move on to what you eventually were wanting to do, which was 911 ambulance? Or was it just a lot of taking old people who had strokes to the hospital? Uh, was that just it? You know, there were... In doing that and taking those, because, you know, that's what a lot of 911 is, is, is people, old people with a medical emergency. And so the fact that these nursing homes so often would use these non-emergency services to sort of cover for the fact that they hadn't noticed that your granddad, you know, had had a stroke four hours ago, um, that gave me a lot of experience, you know, because it would be me and some some other EMTs. So both of us are EMTs. Um, you know, there's no paramedic involved. It's just two EMTs. And, uh, the person I was partnered with oftentimes didn't know what he was doing, maybe knew less than I did, um, or maybe thought he knew what he was doing and was just really bad at his job. And so it kind of forced me very early to, you know, put me in control of a situation I was not prepared to be in control of. And, of course, you learn from that. You know, you, you gain experience in terms of dealing with an emergency and, uh, and then trying to be involved, which is, you know, it was kind of funny because then I switched to a 911 service and now, 
like nobody would dream of, of putting me in the back with one of those patients. You know, I didn't have, I had neither the training nor the experience to do that. So I went from this world where if anything went wrong, I just would be the one to take over because I knew my partner knew even less than I did to one in which, you know, I was considered nowhere near experienced or trained enough to handle it. So I did learn some stuff for sure. Wedding season is coming up. And if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. 
You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. After you went from a private medical, private emergency service, after that you went to the county, Fulton County, correct? Mm-hmm, I did. Is that when you first saw your first traumatic accident? You talked about in your training, uh, in your certification course, you would get lightheaded looking at the pictures uh, in the, the manual. Did you encounter something like that when you were at Fulton? Yeah, that was where, you know, that was a regular 911 service. So, you know, right away you begin to, you know, right away you're, 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 that's what you're doing. So I think my very first call um, working Fulton County EMS was uh, a guy who, he was mowing his lawn and it was morning and it was a, it was a slight hill in the little slope in the backyard. And he was, you know, he went down and then was backing up, which is, you know, the one thing you should never do in a lawnmower especially in wet grass uphill, he slips and essentially just pulls a lawnmower over his foot. And, um, you know, there go your toes in, in a hurry. And so that was the first call was for a guy who had cut his toes off uh, with a lawnmower. And so there I am, it's 8.15 in the morning, I'm brand new. And I'm kneeling in this guy's grass looking for, looking for toes. And I, was, I couldn't have been happier than I was at that <laughs> moment. It was you know, I got here. I am. You know, I'm doing it. I'm I'm in the mix, and, and something crazy has happened, and I'm the one that that was called. And that is an incredibly, especially in the beginning, it's an incredibly heady, intoxicating feeling to know that, like whatever you're doing, you might be sitting down eating lunch, you might be, you know, at work, checking off that you have everything that you need, but to know that if anything goes wrong, I'm the person that they're going to call to handle it. And that's just really this incredible feeling that no matter what happens around me, I'm going to go and I'm going to be there. I'm going to witness it. I'm going to be part of it. So if there's a shooting or an explosion or, you know, a child is born or some massive car wreck or a plane crash, I mean, who knows, whatever happens, I'm, I'm going to be there. Um, I mean, that's just it's, once you get your head around that, uh, it, it's really a pretty, pretty wild experience. So yeah, it's going back to that sense of competency, right? That sense that I can handle whatever this situation is. Uh, I'm curious, did that sense of mastery, we would say, like, uh, in your career as an EMT and paramedic, did that carry over to other aspects of your life? Or was it very domain specific? Like, you felt great and confident when you're looking for toes and patching people up. But when you were out with your wife at home, did was there carry over there? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, it, it didn't, initially I didn't have that feeling, you know, because one, I was new, but two, you know, as the EMT, you are essentially, you're almost a glorified witness. Um, and I don't mean that who anyone who is an EMT, you know, I'm not trying to knock anyone, but anyone who's worked a job knows that ultimately the decisions all come down to the paramedic. So it isn't until you become an experienced paramedic, and, and have to make those decisions by yourself and have to live with the consequences by yourself that you can really begin to feel that level of competence and like, yeah, I've got this and I can handle it. So initially, of course, you know, just as an EMT, it wasn't there. It was just, 
you know, it was just fun. I just wanted to be a part of as many things as I could possibly be a part of so that when I came out of paramedic school, you know, I'd be ready to roll. But when it did come and, you know, it did as I was, had been, you know, around the time I was finishing paramedic school, I'd been at that point in a job about a year and a half and I started to feel very confident because, you know, I'd done a bunch of things and, uh, and yeah, it does. It comes into other aspects of your life because you begin to realize, okay, one, I can handle pressure. Uh, two, you know, I'm not the kind of person who panics. Um, I can deal with multiple things at once. You know, EMS is a lot like, it's like trying to arm wrestle three different people at once. You just never have enough hands to get done everything that needs to get done. And so you have to know how to work really quickly, how to multitask, how to go from one thing to another. And, you know, you're opening packages with your teeth and you're, moving things around with your feet and you're grabbing and you're dropping and you're moving. And meanwhile, of course, there's this patient and you're in an ambulance that's moving 65 miles an hour down the highway. You know, if you've ever stood up in a car or in a, you know, in, in any kind of vehicle, you realize every time it turns, you go flying. And so to learn how to do all that and, and operate under that kind of, uh, that kind of pressure and in an austere environment like that. Yeah. It does huge things for your confidence. And, you know, you, you just realize, okay, I can, I can handle a lot more than I ever thought I was capable of. And, you know, that it'd be very hard, I think, for, for that not to translate to other areas of your life. In the book, you talk about there's different types of EMTs or paramedics. You refer to one group as tourists and the other as true believers. What do you mean by that? Uh, what made an EMT a tourist? And can you give uh, any notable examples from your career of tourists that you had worked with during your time? Yeah, and you see it a lot with, with part-timers, um, but, you know, you see it with all sorts of people. Because EMS is such a strange thing, because you can do a few months of a night course and then go and work somewhere, it, it attracts people who are doing other things with their lives. And so you might have a, a landscaper who just needs benefits and a full-time check because he doesn't do any work in the winter. Um, I had a friend who was a sommelier, and he was trying to get a business off the ground. And again, he needed money. Um, there were people like me who, you know, medicine was not a natural calling for them, but they found the world of EMS to be very intriguing and exciting and fulfilling, and they went to it. Uh, you know, I had a, one of my early partners um, was a bodybuilder, and he was a good guy. He was a good medic. He'd been at it for a long time, but really what he was and what, how he identified himself was not as a paramedic, even though he'd been doing it for 20 years he identified himself as a bodybuilder and he was a strange character who, uh, you know, he, I, I never worked with him when he was getting ready for a show, but he, you know, he, he was, he, he worked out all the time and, you know, he had all his protein shakes and all his muscle magazines and, you know, was always talking about some philosophy and, you know, it's weird cause there's a whole like, you know, uh, questions about, which type of tan is better, natural tan or a, or a sunbed tan? And, and, you know, which oils really accentuate your muscles the best? And, uh, you know, and he, he was this enormous guy who put away a ton of food. And, of course, you know, when he was getting ready for a show, he'd, you know, he'd pare his diet down and be, you know, in tons of diuretics and all that kind of stuff. But on a normal basis, he would eat, you know, this ungodly amount of food because he was just so big. Uh, but that's why he was there. You know, he needed he needed the flexibility when he was getting ready to do a show to be able to work less and work out more. Uh, and, you know, and he was kind of a perfect example of, of what a tourist was someone who was 
doing the job, but it wasn't their primary focus. Were you a tourist for a while? Would you describe yourself as a tourist? Yeah, I, I would. I would, because I was there for reasons that were totally about me in the beginning, you know, and uh, it, it, that's, you know, not something that I, I don't say that with any great level of pride or embarrassment. It's just, it was it just the way it was. Like I went there, um, you know, seeking something about myself as opposed to going there to be part of, to be, a you know, one step in, in, in the healthcare ladder. Uh, I, you know, I went there to, you know, sort of seek all the things that, that young men seek out in, in, in life. And, uh, it took me a while to realize that it wasn't about me, that, that, it, that there were people on the other end of that, you know, on the other end of the ambience, there was someone whose life was, you know, theoretically hanging in the balance and, and I was there to, to take care of them. And, and once I kind of focused less on myself and more on the patient, I found that I had this natural, um, ability for the job that I was, I was, to my surprise, I was a very good medic. And to my surprise, I was very patient and I kind of surprised myself with how caring I could be. These are, you know, aren't things that in your early twenties you would normally characterize yourself as, you know, and, uh, it brought out a lot of great things in me that I never realized were there. So I think you mentioned a part in your book where your wife were walking, you and your wife were walking out in public and you saw someone, a homeless person that you had treated frequently and your wife even noticed that you had become kinder and more. Yeah. And I, I think there are a lot of things that are in us all the time. Um, you know, just like the ability to handle pressure. It, it's like I learned it through this job. It's either in you or it isn't. There are plenty of people who do the job who can handle pressure and you can see it. You see them break down and everybody knows it. And, you know, there's a sort of black mark over their name where we all say, oh, boy, don't work with him. You know, he's going to he's going to panic when it comes down to it. Uh, and, yeah, that that you know, that compassion and that empathy was something that the job brought out. And, you know, that particular case you're referring to is a woman uh, that we ran all the time who, you know, essentially she, you know, there are a lot of people like this where she had massive substance abuse issues, but they were part of that was, was a a long and um, untreated psychological history. And, and she had some pretty serious uh, mental issues and, and, because she didn't have any kind of support system, she wound up on the streets and, and, you know, being in the streets is a place where people tend to get into prostitution and drugs. And, and that's really what she was. I mean, you know, to, to the average person walking down the street, she, you would just say, well, this is just a crack whore. Um, and that's kind of how she described herself, but she was, she was a good person. And we used to joke and laugh and I picked her up quite a bit and she got to know me. She got to know my wife or at least by name. And so, yeah, one day we were tailgating at a football game and, uh, and I see her picking through the trash and it was this weird moment. It wasn't that often that my professional and personal life, uh, lives collided like that, but there was the prime example of it. And there she was. And so I stopped and uh, I said, Hey, what's going on? She came right over and, you know, gave me this hug and, and, you know, my friends are kind of, they know me at this point. They know they've heard all the stories. So they're sort of staring, trying to figure out well, who, who is this person? Who's the, you know, which, which of the stories have we heard um, is she a part of? And, and, and she sees my wife and instantly says, Oh, you know, and starts talking to her and knows her by name and knows all these things about her. And, uh, and then she sort of, <laughs> She she takes my wife by the hand and, and says, "Come on, I want you to meet my boyfriend." And you know, Sabrina looks at me, and I was like, "Well, this you know probably not safe." And I, a friend of mine was standing there who worked with me, a really uh, a very big guy, and he was like, I'll, "I'll walk with her." 
And so they walk sort of across the field and um, she meets, you know, introduces my wife to her boyfriend, which is ultimately just her pimp. And, and the guy sort of looks at my wife and says, uh, smiles at her and says, you know, holler at me if you ever want to make some money because with an ass like that, we can, we can make things happen. And it, she was very, you know, <laughs> sort of an eye-opening experience for my wife, of course. Um, but that was kind of a day in the life for me. You, know, you spent so much time dealing with people like that and in really dangerous neighborhoods and bad areas. And that was just sort of the, you know, um, your clientele, so to speak. And, uh, you know, she was just surprised by, I think, the, the degree to which you know, I sort of accepted those people without judgment. But, you know, I think that's part of the job. That's part of what would make you a good medic. That's really, there's a really poignant moment uh, in the book. You and your wife go to New York City to go to the 9-11 memorial, and there were discounts for police, firemen, military, first responders, but there weren't any for paramedics or EMT. Even though that you point out during, in your book, that during the 9-11 attacks, 43 EMTs and medics died trying to rescue people. I think that speaks to a larger topic of why EMTs or paramedics don't get the same sort of respect as other first responders do. Uh, there are the pe- These are the people, like I said earlier, that when it's tw- 2 o'clock in the morning and grandma's having a stroke, they're often the ones who get there first. Yeah, and ultimately, they're the ones who, you know, the ambulance is where a life is saved or not. You know, nobody, nobody goes to hospital by fire truck. You know, it's just not the way it works. It's paramedics and, and EMTs are the ones who, who do that. Um, you know, I think there's several reasons for it. First is that the paramedic, the field, you know, the title paramedic did not exist until the late 60s, and they didn't exist in practice until about 1970. And since then, it's been sort of a strange road where people have been trying to figure out, you know, what the field is and how to use it best. And, and so there's, it's kind of new, and, you know, it's a bit misunderstood and, and not always properly used by the cities. Then there's the fact that it's medicine, you know, and you know, people have a fear of doctors and would rather not even think about that. Um, you know, and of course, firefighters and police, even even as much you know, trouble as, as police find themselves in today, they still occupy rarefied air in American society and firefighters as well. And, uh, you know, even though, you know, in commercials, you see them joke about, you know, firefighters rescuing a cat from a tree, there's still nobody who you know, a fire engine goes by in a parade and, you know, people wave and, and, and they, they, it's implicit immediately in that interaction between the parade and all these things that we, we revere and the fire engine, you, you get it. You know, that is a part of, of these people are there to save us should our house burn. But that recognition doesn't exist when you see an ambulance. It's just, it's just this other thing. And, um, you know, it's never been portrayed, I don't think the correct way in popular culture. I mean, if you imagine, if you think about when you see an ambulance in a movie, it's at the end, right? When Bruce Willis's partner is badly burned and shot in the stomach and half dead, and you know, but Bruce has saved the day, and these two faceless medics jump out in their little white cloaks and they load Bruce Willis's partner into the back of the ambulance, and then of course, you know, Bruce has to double tap the doors to say, "Hey guys, you can drive off now." You know, I give you my blessing, as if they're too dumb to even know when to right. drive away. Uh, and that's kind of the only way they're really ever portrayed. And um, there's, it's just generally speaking, I think we have sort of looked past it. We try not to focus on it for, I think, all those reasons. Has there been any uh, popular television shows about paramedics? Yeah, there was a show in the 70s. And frankly, this is what created a big boom in, in this field because you, you figure 69 
Jacksonville, Florida is the first city to really figure out how to use a paramedic. And then other cities start using that model through the early 70s. But, of course, you know, you got to devote some budget to it. So it was slow happening. But in the mid to late 70s, this show called Emergency came on, and it was about this group of, of this pair of paramedics working in L.A. And that, I mean, you talk to people who were in their 40s and 50s about how they got into EMS, they will tell you it was that show. And, you know, it was essentially an EMS version of Dragnet. You know, these two guys um, going out, you know, working hard, doing everything they can to try to save lives and get things done. You know, it was sort of, you know, perfectly fit the era. Um, but it also certainly glorified the field. But that's the only thing that's ever existed. And, you know, as the world has become more complicated and more accepting of complicated stories, the uh, EMS is sort of the one thing that has never been given that that treatment, you know, that we're the humor of, of it all and the darkness and the sort of Coen Brothers side of, of our story has never been told. And of course, that was a big part of why I wanted to write the book. Yeah, as, as I was reading the book, uh, that's what I thought. I thought this would make a great TV show like The Wire for paramedics or something. Yeah, the Law I mean, and it's going to be hard to, to disagree with that. You know, it's you you see that sort of, um, you know, you, you kind of see that version of it all the time. I mean, you know, if you look at essentially what the Sopranos did to the mob story, I mean, they, they de-glorified it. You know, there's the Godfather on the one end, which is you know, impossible to even imagine ever existed in any way. Um, you know, but that's sort of how it was portrayed in a lot of cases. And then the Sopranos comes along, it gives you a much more flawed, you know, uh, look at it where, you know, this mob boss is, you know, practically scared of his own shadow and has so many issues. Um, and I feel like there's, you know, the time is right for, for the EMS version of that to, sh- to show what, what it is really like. So you did this job for 10 years, right? I did years. ten years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's the schedule's grueling. You saw carnage on a regular basis. The people you dealt with, uh, you talk about in your book, they're often very difficult. Sometimes you had a fight with people physically who you're trying to rescue. Often, physically, yeah, a lot of times, emotionally exhausting. So, what kept you going? You know, why did you stay so long? Because you talk about in the in the book, a lot of people are in it for a little bit and then they're out. But why did you stay so long? Yeah, you know, they're sort of a there are a couple of factors, but I think they all boil down to the same thing. Um, a lot of people leave and come back and they say, well, you know, I just missed it. You know, I missed being part of medicine and I missed, you know, being here. And, um, but you know, you can work medicine anywhere else in any other brand of medicine and be paid a lot more for it than you do in EMS. And I, I think that there are a couple of things that really keep people rooted in the field. And the one is a bond that you have between the person you work with. Um, I was actually emailing back and forth this morning with a, with a guy that I haven't seen in years who's an old partner of mine. And the affection that we have for each other, is, it'd, be, it'd be difficult to understand um, for someone who's never done it. You know, you, you find yourself in a situation, and this guy in particular is a perfect example. He and I get called out late at night, a horrible part of town, uh, for this girl who's been injured. And we get to the door, and there's 25, 30 people in a room, and they are drunk, and they are fired up. And then come these two guys, and they look at us, and, you know, we don't look like them. We don't come from their world. And they immediately get angry with us, and the situation gets violent. And thankfully, he was a big enough guy to be able to stand up and, and you know, calm them down with his physical presence. Um, but he, we had multiple instances where we had to, you know, fight patients. And we're wrestling around with people, and 
you know, you, you have that moment um, where you get called out to someone and it, the guy gets violent and you are fighting with him and his family is yelling at you and people are jumping in and some neighbors saying, I'm going to go and call the police and, or I'm going to go and get a gun. And, you know, the cops are there and it's just mad scene. And you're trying to just get this guy to, all you want to do is help this guy get him to the hospital, but you wound up in a full blown fist fight with him and you've got him on your stretcher and you got him tied down and you are sweaty and your clothes are ripped and you've got scratch marks on your face and you're, exhausted and you know you just sort of look at each other and smile there's this little moment of a of a smirk that you that passes like i can't believe that just happened and damn we did it again and um and that sort of you know being in that situation over and over again having to rely so heavily on somebody it it creates a strange bond you know that for the 40 minutes or so that it takes to run a call that other person is the only person in your universe you know, your partner is the only other resource that you have. And, you know, there are a lot of dangerous situations and a lot of difficult situations. There are a lot of times where, you know, you have the ability to save someone's life, but you need your partner to, to help you. And, and when they do, and the two of you are able to work together to, to save somebody and, and they come through at that exact moment, you need them to come through and, and do their end of the job perfectly. You, you just, you get, it just, creates an incredible bond and and that is is really a big part of it the friendships that we have and how tight we are with one another even though how hard we are on with one another and you know there's pc does not exist there and uh the things people say to each other you know it the, the humor is very dark and very you know very aggressive um so that's a huge huge part of it and of course the other thing is that working in that in that field and sitting out on a friday night when the weather is nice and you're in this bad part of town and you hear the distant pop pop of a, of a gun and, and there are people walking around and they're kind of, you know, drug dealers communicate with this sort of almost like a cat call, bird call, whoop, whoop to each other. And, um, and you're, you're parked in this vacant lot and you're just watching all this go on around you. And you know that whatever happens tonight and you can just tell it's going to be a crazy night that you and your partner are going to be called out to it. There's a, I mean, that's just a, I mean, it's just a fun, it's an exciting job. And so those moments, um, you know, go a long way. And they really, you know, even in the the boring times when it's raining and you're just running nothing but nothing and, uh, you know, you remember those exciting moments. And it's those, I think those things come together, the, the incredible bond and then the highs that you have when the job is really good. Uh, I don't, you know, I think you know that if, once you leave, you aren't going to get those back. You did leave eventually. Uh, do you miss it? Um, I, I, my career, I think, ran its course, so I don't miss the job, but I do miss those two aspects. I do, more than anything, I miss that close relationship that I have with those people, of showing up at work and finding out that someone you really like, you get along with really well, is going to be your partner that night, and knowing, man, this is going to be a great night uh, right away. And then getting in the ambulance and two of you just start talking and goofing around and and you know, and and especially the those those exciting times, those really those great calls that you you love to run, where you, they're really hard, but you you know you get it done. It'd be hard not to to say you don't miss that. Um, but it's it's such a strange thing, you know. Once you get out of it, you realize very quickly that you know <laughs> I'm not at the level. I you know it's sort of like a a fighter that stops training. You you get out of fighting shape very quickly, and um, it's not like I could hop on an ambulance tonight and do that do that job. I you know, I'm no longer in that condition. 
Hey, Kevin, this has been a really fascinating discussion. Where can people learn more about you and your book? Uh, there's a website, kevinhazard.com, and uh, there's stuff. There's you know some, some things that didn't make the book. There are some pictures and reviews and, and links to places that, uh, that you can buy the book. Kevin Hazard, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I really appreciate it. My guest today was Kevin Hazard. He's the author of the book, A Thousand Naked Strangers. You can find it on Amazon.com. Go check it out. It's uh, really poignant, graphic, detailed, and also there's points where it's just laugh out loud, hilarious. You can find more information about Kevin's work at kevinhazard.com, and that's hazard with two Zs. And also you can check the show notes for this podcast at aom.is slash hazard. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy this podcast and have gotten something out of it, really appreciate it if you take a few minutes to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. That really helps our show out and gets the word out about it. Uh, as always, appreciate the support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate. Pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.